IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss Coachella, the new Jason Isbell documentary, and the return of Emo. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's really excited about Fire Festival 2, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, ma- imagine my disappointment when I found out that Fire Fest 2 wasn't the reason Blink-182 was trending this morning. I felt like if you're going to do Fire Fest right, you got to bring the OGs. You got to get Blink on there. You got to get uh, Ja Rule. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not here in Firefest too. Like it needs to be. Let's do the old one right, or it's not real, or it's or or it's just like a, or it's just like a front to get like five new documentaries made. So for those who don't know, uh, Billy McFarland, who is the impresario of the first Fire Festival. And I thought he was in jail. Was he ever in jail? I'm pretty sure. Like he might have gotten out. Um, okay. Huh. He's out of jail, apparently, because I think he was in jail, but now he's out and he's tweeting. And he said that Fire Festival 2 is going to happen. And I, I, I think if we, if we know anything, it's that we should take Billy McFarland at his word. Yes. So I'm sure he's not just uh, blowing smoke here. I, I, you know, I'm sure that we can all get our tickets and finally go. I mean, wouldn't this be Fire Festival 1? Because the actual Fire Festival one didn't happen. Well, it, it happened just in a very limited capacity. Um, I think you got to keep the name though. Like the, I think that yeah. the, it, you know, this the whole sort of deal with uh, first as uh, tragedy, second time as farce. Like people will want to go to Fire Festival too, just to get off some good like TikToks or whatever. And mind you, I don't think TikTok was around by the first Fire Festival, right? Wow, I think you're right. It, because that was, was that like 2017? Yes, that like was that? 2017 that happened. Wow, <laughs> were we ever so young <laughs> as we were in 2017, pre-TikTok. What was going on in 2017? Uh, People tweeting about Trump? There, that was, there was that going yeah, on? When that was happening, I remember I was working at the, uh, at, at, the, at the Wick Center in Benton, Kentucky, and just like watching Handmaid's Tale and hoping I don't get noticed <laughs> by my like bosses or whatever. Uh, oh yeah. man, the, the the Kentucky era of Ian Cohen—that yeah. is, uh, that that's an interesting part of your catalog. Yeah, but for the most part, I was listening to like still. I remember Turnover and well, actually White Reaper. That was that was the time I got super into oh, White yeah. Reaper. So yeah, the White Reaper year. Yeah, yeah, that was a big no TikTok. Lots of White Reaper. What a year! <laughs> what a year 2017 was. Um, so Coachella takes place this weekend. It's the first of two weekends. And I'm wondering if we are no longer obligated to talk about Coachella on this podcast because I was looking at the lineup. And look, this is an ongoing conversation about Coachella, but this really seems like the least indie rock Coachella yet. And I mean that not to say that there aren't any Indie rock bands on the bill. Uh, Boy Genius is on there. Uh, who else is on there? Alex Wet G leg, is on there. Course. Wet Leg. Yeah. Eve's Tumor's on there. So there are some indie rockers. But in terms of like the major movers and shakers 
well, here they are. So the headliners on Friday are Bad Bunny, Gorillas, are like the second build band. I want to talk about Gorillas here in a second. Let's table that for a minute. And then on Saturday, a Blackpink and Rosalia. And then Sunday, it's Frank Ocean. Is there any reporting on whether Frank Ocean's actually going to show up? Is that like are we confident that's going to happen? Apparently, the uh, the uh, the um, nostalgia ultra car the that was featured on the cover was found at Coachella. So I would say more likely than not, he's going to show up. So maybe it'll just be the car, <laughs> like just take out the car. Yeah, you know, like like you know, Knight Rider that that car kit. Yes, you know that would go to like county fairs and stuff. Um, you, you talk about like uh, you know I I had to check your facts here because. I would say that, like, yeah, 2023 probably is the least indie rock one. But did you see last year's? I just decided to look at 2022. And do you remember who the headliners were? Well, Harry Styles, one, right, yeah. was was one of them. Um, was The Weeknd last yeah, year? Yeah, that was Swedish House Mafia and The Weeknd. Okay. They, they shared the so, headline. Yeah, and Billie Eilish. So, I mean, yeah, again, this is not a new story. I should say that the other headliner, Big... Uh, performer on Sunday is Bjork. Yeah. So Bjork and and Gorillas are like the elder statesmen and women among the uh, top build performers here. Yeah, I know this isn't like a new thing. I, I I guess I was just really struck by how you have to go to like the third or fourth line mm-hmm. in most yeah. cases to see any kind of indie rock at all. I think Boy Genius is the highest build. I should be of. Of the indie performers, if you can call them indie, being on Interscope, uh, one of the biggest labels in the world. Uh, you know, of course, we use indie as a descriptor of music that goes beyond label affiliation. But, you know, they're a pretty mainstream band. Um, I was also struck, I don't know how deep you went into, into this poster. Because I was looking at the poster this morning, very intrigued. One thing I thought was interesting is the prominence of 90s electronica acts. Oh, yeah. Like like the Chemical Brothers are, the f- I think, the fourth build band on Friday. Huh. And then Underworld is like on the second line. I think they're at the end of the second line on Saturday. And I'm intrigued by that. I mean, I, I, this is sort of like classic rock yeah. electronica at this point. I could see that going over very well. In the desert. Like, in a way, I would rather see Underworld than Alex G or Boy Genius at Coachella. You know, I feel like in that environment, that music works better than, you know, big ticket indie rock does. Yeah, I mean, I also think that's a way that Coachella connects to its roots, as ridiculous as that sounds. If you look at, like, the late 90s, it was bands like Underworld and Chemical Brothers and Bjork as well. I'm pretty sure that Bjork was doing those early ones as well. And um, yeah, of course, I would much rather see, like as much as I, you know, it's cool that uh, Soul Glow and Knocked Loose are getting, you know, that performance fee. I've been to Coachella when they've had kind of quasi-hardcore bands playing. And, you know, you get to see them at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon in this huge tent. And not ever like it's not particularly full. I mean, you're happy for them, but... Of course, I'd rather see the Chemical Brothers. Of course, I'd rather see Underworld. I mean, give me Fat Boy Slim. Hell yeah, man! I want to see, I want to see the Rockefeller Skank. I want to see uh, the Body oh, yeah. Moving Remix from BC Boys. Is Fat Boy still doing it? Is he? Uh, is he still a thing? Is he touring? Is there like a Fat Boy Slim 
like 20th anniversary <laughs> tour of the Rockefeller Skank. Oh, is that going on? That's way older probably, than 20 years, isn't it? That's probably like 25 yeah. years at this point. Um, um, no, I, th- I think he... Yeah, uh, the twenty. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, and 2018 is the uh, last thing he did, which is a remix album. Okay, but he's probably on the road. He's probably doing like corporate events. Yeah, you know, like if if uh, Google wants to throw a party for the employees, you bring in Fat Boy Slim, uh, and who else from that era would you bring in? Moby. Maybe you bring in the band. You bring well, in Moby, Moby would probably oh, yeah, find some bullshit like moralistic issue with it, but he would probably take. Oh that. no way! No, I, he would take that. Not check at this anyway. point. Yeah, but well, like, come on, what kind of stand is Moby taking <laughs> at this point? He, he, I think he's like a vet, uh, uh, a vegetarian, so he's probably not gonna vegan. He's got that know, tattooed, and he's got that tattooed on right. it, and somehow you missed it. <laughs> so he's not gonna be doing, you know, he's not playing slaughterhouses or anything like that. But other than that, I, I think Moby would would definitely sell out. Um, we've talked about this before, but it, I don't know. It just tickles me to think about the 2013 Coachella because, you know, we're 10 years on here and I was looking at the poster for that. And we've talked about this year of Coachella before because the stone roses and blur headline one day, by the way, Damon Alburn, the uh, Coachella mascot here, we got blur in 2013. He's here with gorillas in 2023. I mean, he's probably bad with the good, the bad and the queen as well. That's right. Right. The good, the bad, and the queen. All of the Damon Alburn projects are welcome at Coachella. I mean, it's pretty clear now that that gorillas are like way bigger than Blur ever were, at least in America. I mean, I mean, like Blur is basically like a gorilla's footnote at this point, which kind of blows my mind. You know, and this is my age, I guess. Uh, I mean, Gorillaz to me will always seem like a novelty mm-hmm. band. The cartoon rappers <laughs> with a little bit of rock mixed in. Um, the kids love Gorillaz, though. They apparently. really, really do. You'd be shocked uh, just ha- like how many uh, Gorillaz t-shirts I see, you know, on people who are young. I mean, like, you know, the fact that it is. A Why, car, though? It- why? Uh, maybe the fact that there is a it is a cartoon, or maybe they're just like really fucking emotionally moved by Clint Eastwood. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's very strange to me. Um, but anyway, going back to the 2013 lineup, you had Stone Roses and Blur the headliners, and obviously Stone Roses were not a great headliner for they Coachella. were terrible. They were like, terrible. I was there. It was like <laughs> so fucking sad. Yeah, so this is like a transition for Coachella. I think they still sold out this year, but it was like, okay, we can't be catering to Stone Roses fans in yeah. 2013. Uh, but I, I, like other acts on Friday, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Modest Mouse, Lou Reed. Huh. I don't remember who, that. Who, who, uh, well, he oh. canceled <laughs> because uh, he, he, well, he passed away later this year. I, I, I imagine he was already sick at this point. So he didn't make it to Coachella. Jurassic oh, wow. 5. And Grinder that, Man. That set ruled, by the way. Nobody was there, but that set ruled. But Grinder Man? Oh, yeah. Oh, I bet. But on the second line of the Coachella poster, Grinder Man. Kind of mind I think blowing. they played opposite the weekend or something like that. <laughs> oh, man. It was just like, I love that, like, nowadays that, you know, you have, like, Chemical Brothers or, like, like or Underworld as, like, the old head uh, tent. 
Whereas in 2013, you would have like Grinder Man and Swans and Drive Like Jehu. Yeah. It's really the sign of the times there. So Saturday, Phoenix was the headliner. Coming off their flop album. <laughs> yes, Bankrupt Era. Uh, yes. Bankrupt was the name of the record, but it was also, in a way, Phoenix's state of business at the at the time. They're the headliner. And that was weird even in 2013. I wrote a column for Grant yeah. about that. Like, why is Phoenix headlining Coachella? Uh, the XX, Postal Service, Sigur Ross, New Order, Hot Chip, and Grizzly Bear on the second line of... <laughs> The Coachella poster. And then you get to Sunday, you have the Chili Peppers headlining. Okay, that's... Yeah. It, it, it's the Josh Klinghoffer era, though, of the Chili Peppers. Yeah. Not full strength. I did not go to that. I did not go to that one. Yeah, it's like 75% of the Chili Peppers. I, I, I drove home. Uh, yeah, Nick, I drove I drove the fuck home. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Nick Cave doing double duty as a Coachella. Oh, yeah. head, so he got paid twice, I imagine. Get that bag. Vampire Weekend. Social distortion on the second line. <laughs> Hell yeah. Wu-Tang Clan. Um, that bill feels like it was 20 years ago, not 10 years ago. I mean, some of those bands weren't around 20 years ago, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It seems it's, so far away. Like, like, there's, like, how many of these bands would even be booked at Coachella now, much less as a headliner? You know, like, like would social distortion be booked at Coachella <laughs> now? I mean, or even... Um, you know, like the yeah, yeah, yes, a fine band, but you just look at I what they're they doing. Would. You think they would? Okay, so I think so. I think them. I think I think you could always get away with having New Order there. That stuff always plays well. Um, Postal Service, sure, but like, yeah, Vampire Weekend, of course, as well. But like, Social Distortion has like a deal with like the House of Blues around America, sort of like Elvis at that one hotel back in uh, his Vegas days, you know. Uh, every single time uh, I passed by the House of Blues when I was living in L.A., it felt like Social Distortion was playing there. Yeah, I just like to imagine whoever Social Distortion was playing opposite to, there's like 10,000 people there. And then for Social D, it's like 100 <laughs> guys in like greaser haircuts hanging out. Fucking rockabilly, the teddy boys, <laughs> just the worst. Like... uh I I mean I don't want smoke with social distortion fans, but God, man! If, I like social well, distortion. Like I I like that band. I just think it's funny thinking about them in the context of Coachella, 2013, and, and like, and I, I I imagine Social D plays Southern California quite a bit. I don't yeah. know if you're gonna go to Coachella to see Social D, but I don't know. Maybe there was like uh, you know uh, someone who was there for like Glorilla. And they saw social distortion by accident, and uh, you know they had their mind blown. They had their mind blown by bad luck and uh, mommy's I little monster. Wrong. I was uh, yeah. wrong. Um, let's talk about this Jason Isbell documentary that debuted on HBO. I think it was last weekend. It was last Friday. It's called Running with Our Eyes Closed, and it's directed by Sam Jones, who uh, also directed uh, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart the Wilco film, one of the great documentaries, uh, music documentaries of the last 20 years. And like that film, this new Jason Isbell movie, it focuses on the making of an album. In this case, it's Isbell's 2020 record reunions. And it's also like the Wilco movie centered on a troubled relationship 
between two creative people. Uh, in this case, it's Isbell and his wife and bandmate, Amanda Shires. And I wanted to get your take on this because you saw the movie. I think you asked mm-hmm. me, like, should I watch this? And I was like, yeah, I think I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Because I, I know you're not a huge Isbell fan solo, but I think this is the kind of movie that even if you're not a huge fan of Jason Isbell you could get into this movie because it's just an interesting documentary. And in terms of music documentaries, what stood out to me is that this is the first music doc I've seen in a while that didn't feel like a commercial for the artist. Mm. Uh, You know, there's this trend now, there's so many music documentaries being made and most of them are authorized by the artist and the artist essentially like owns the movie. So they have a vested interest in, putting out a certain image of themselves and watching this movie. I mean, I don't know to what degree Isbell had control over this, but if he did, he allowed Sam Jones to paint him at times in an unflattering light. Um, I think it ultimately makes him look good because he seems courageous to have allowed this movie to be put out. It's mm-hmm. for the same reason why some kind of monster, the Metallica yeah. movie, I think ultimately makes Metallica look good because they had the guts to like show <laughs> this kind of terrible side of themselves in this movie, which by the way, I recently rewatched some kind of monster. That might be the best music doc of the 21st I think century. It is. If it's not, it's in the conversation with, I am trying to break your heart and dig and maybe mm-hmm. a couple others as the best. Um, but I don't know. This movie, it's so candid about the marital problems that Isbell and Shires are having at this moment in time. Part of me was like, oh, this is this like too honest? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because like as a viewer, I appreciated it because the movie is riveting. It's very mm-hmm. absorbing, especially for the first hour. Because uh, it also gets into like the drive-by trucker stuff with Isbell, which... Could have been its own movie, as far as I was concerned. I mean, that stuff is was so interesting. Um, but you know, this is more than just sort of delving into like a band with interpersonal problems. This is like talking about a marriage. And there are scenes in this movie where I was cringing a little bit. Like, there's a scene where Amanda Shires is talking about how she had Isabel take an STD test before they yeah, hooked that ruled. up because <laughs> he was, you know, I don't know, sleeping around, I guess, in his single days as a musician. Um, and I just wonder, like, what's the cost benefit of being this open about your marriage? I mean, again, as a viewer, I was totally into it. But if I was like a friend of Jason's or Amanda's, I might be like, do you really want to put your business out there? Like this, it just feels like you're giving ammunition to every internet troll from now until the end of time. I don't know. Like, what was your reaction to this movie? I mean, I, I again, I really like the movie, but it is like I think the rare music documentary where you actually feel uncomfortable at times because it is so candid. I mean, I wish Jason Isbell all the health and happiness uh, the universe will afford him. But, I mean, wouldn't you take this documentary for, like, two hours of my coolly narrated drinking anecdotes about the drive-by truckers days? I was a little disappointed I didn't hear from him. I mean, He's I not just down love- to, I, See, I, when I profiled the, the drive-by truckers uh-huh. in 2015, like, I went to Athens and I hung out with them. And Cooley was like, 
I would love it if I didn't have to talk about ex-band members in this uh, interview. Damn. Like, I, I don't think he was down because they had all because it wasn't just Isbell and and Shona Tucker. There was like some other drama that happened after that uh. in that band. But anyway, I'm sure Cooley was like, I, I'm gonna. I don't want to talk about this. Yeah. I would just love to hear him just like in his voice, which is probably very similar to his singing voice, just talk about like how how fucking hard they went. Because I appreciated that part because it was just a confirmation that they were as wasted as I was at those shows at the time. And, you know, Jason uh, Isbell at that time kind of looks like Matt Stafford if like he played guitar instead of a uh, quarterback. Love that whole era. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think what immediately struck me is that um, – you know, it, it, it kind of looked like one of those King King of Queens style sitcoms because, you know, you have Amanda Shires in there. Like she has like an MFA in poetry. She can sing really well. She plays several instruments, successful solo career. And like ultimately she has veto power over anything that Jason Isbell seems to do. Uh, and Jason's just like kind of this schlubby Alabama guy. He's like, well, I guess I'm paying for everything. So what are you going to do? Um, and so that was a really interesting part of it as well, because, you know, even if objectively speaking, uh, Amanda Shires might be more of a talent or a star or whatever. It's like, we are watching this because Jason, because of Jason Isbell. And it's a really, it, it almost reminded me of like a more hands-on version of that thing we read where it was one of the Gallagher brothers. Apparently his wife didn't like Oasis, um, I think the most cringeworthy thing is when he picks up like a 12 string guitar and Amanda Shire is like, I would fucking remove every single one of these things if I could. Um, yeah, she's not also, into the 12 string guitar for some reason. That That's a yeah, very interesting thing. She just goes on a rant about how she hates 12 string guitars, which, you know, to be fair, I mean, it does, you know, it does. Uh, have a very distinct sound, and if you don't like it, you know it might just have associations with uh, music that you're not into. But um, you know, I love. I also love how she's like wearing all these like very oversized glasses. I think that would be the thing that would activate the troll contingent of Jason Isbell's fan base more than anything. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, going back to what you were saying, I mean, one thing that that that's alluded to in this movie, and it's not fully addressed is what happens like when two artists are together and they're in the same field is it inevitable that you're going to have some sort of like competitive thing going on like that was something that i was observing watching this movie because mm-hmm. you know you were you were you were talking about the king of queens dynamic between jason and, and amanda and i i know what you mean but it's also true that Isbell is more successful in his career and he's mm-hmm. more famous than Amanda is. And there does seem to be like some tension about like where they fit with each other in terms of their creative lives. And then you have the personal dynamic going on. It's a very interesting thing. In a way I was, when I was watching it, I was like, this is sort of like if Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett were married. And I am trying to break your heart. Like, if you also had that dynamic on top of all of the creative stuff going on, because there is a thing in this movie, like, where they're in the studio, and at times Amanda Shires is, like, belittling what Jason Isbell is doing to the camera in a way that seems not quite productive. And then at the same time, he's saying rude things to her. It's like a lot of passive-aggressive stuff going on. 
And it's the kind of thing where, you know, because of the access that Sam Jones has, he's able to show a lot of things without telling you. You know, like, it's not... There is a lot of stuff in the movie, like, where they're directly talking to the camera about the issues that they're having in their marriage, but there's also just, like, a lot of observed behavior in the movie Mm -hmm. that I think is fascinating. And again, I love it as a viewer. There's a part of me, though, that's like, are they going to regret, you know, this movie coming out? Like, I don't know if I would want like my marriage to be exposed in this way. It's a very courageous thing to do. I just wonder like why do this? <laughs> like what what is the benefit of it? Uh unless you feel it's like therapeutic in some way. You know, I mean I know like the Metallica guys said that about some kind of monster that this allowed them to sort of work through their issues and that they felt the film helped them, you know, along with the therapy that they were doing at that time. So maybe there's that aspect to it but i don't know maybe i'm a more private person like i wouldn't want to air because it's one thing to say like oh our band is falling apart but like a marriage is such a personal thing i mean there and there's like a level of of exposure in this film that i just i haven't seen in a music doc in a while yeah i mean i could just imagine you know showing uh my creative process where it's like okay i'm gonna go uh, write about new pornographers for an hour. You could watch like an episode of Love Is Blind. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't have the same frisson or whatever you want to call it. But I think that just J. I think it humanizes them in a, more so than like makes them look bad. And I think a big part of Jason Isbell's appeal, and I would say Amanda Shires as well, is being kind of human. You know, like they're like, oh, I could see these as people uh, I might hang out with. You know. I will say the one funniest part of this is, um, you know, in the beginning, there's that part where uh, they're kind of pouring over, like, what's the proper preposition to use in a song. And Jason's like, Amanda won't tolerate a cliched lyric. And, like, later on, he's singing a song that rhymes, like, friend with end and then pain with rain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ryan Adams or some shit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... There are elements in this film, just like with some kind of monster, and I am trying to break your heart, where the line between a documentary and the parody of a documentary gets blurry, you know? And I think it it just goes to show that all forms of dysfunction are a cliche in some way. Like, any kind of fight that you have that maybe seems specific to your situation, if you pull back a bit, you can just say, "Well, well, that's a fight that any band has or any couple has, and it becomes comedic. And there are parts of the, of this movie running with her eyes closed that I think are sort of unintentionally funny in yeah. the way that you said, but overall really good movie. I really liked it. And, uh, I would recommend it. You, even if you're not a fan of Isabel, if you're just into music documentaries, I think this is definitely one of the better ones I've seen in a while. Um, so you brought this up to me, because this is totally in your wheelhouse. So I'm going to let you take the lead on this. But apparently CBS News this week did a story about emo. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's about how emo is back. And I believe it featured Demi Lovato. Mm-hmm. Who I guess is an emo artist. I don't think she is. But CBS News, they have seasoned journalists, investigative reporters. So there was a CBS News investigation that concluded that Demi Lovato is an emo musician. So we learned something there. Um, 
this story, because I think it talks about emo night as well with a couple yeah. other sort of shallow signifiers. Um, because I'm a big fan of like emo isn't getting enough respect discourse. So is this story an example of that? Are we bringing back that discourse for this story? Did CBS News get it wrong? Or is this something that uh, is actually good for the emo community? I mean, I don't even know if it's like a sign of maturity or just this kind of irreversible emotional necrosis, but I can't even get mad about this kind of shit anymore. I mean, first off, I thought it was even funnier that um, there was an article, there was an interview uh, with Braid about the Framing Canvas reissue in People magazine. Um, I think it was just online, but nonetheless on People. Uh, the same guy did a Hot Water Music interview for People before, but... oh. People's, uh, it's people's emo correspondent. They, they have, uh, they have their own investigative reporters in the emo community. Did this person also interview Demi Lovato? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's more kind of the, uh, the kind of, uh, social, the kind of like advanced social distortion kind of people where it's like, you know, they, they got like sleeve tattoos and denim jackets, but they push their kids in a stroller. It's like that kind of at water dad look, but um, yeah, I mean, like, whatever, do this. Like, it's like Avril Lavigne and Emo Night and Demi Lovato. I mean, as long as someone's talking about it, because, like, DIY indie emo, like, this year is just deader than fucking dead, man. Like, I already told our editor, Phil, that I can't put together a top 10 list for December unless things change rapidly. You know, it's, um, I know that there's bands trying to, like, you know, make emo music now, but a lot of it sounds like, uh, like a retread of all the Tumblr core stuff, like Balance and Composure and Citizen and Sea Haven, which, you know, that stuff sounded like Swaglish Bush back in the day. But hey, Balance and Composure's back. Uh, and uh, that's, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, the Pitchfork track review I wrote for Reflection was probably the most consequential thing I ever put on that site because, you know, people lost their goddamn minds and kind of showed that, hey, maybe we should start covering stuff from this era. But um, yeah, good for balance and composure. You know, like many people from that era, they, you know, kind of disavowed emo and tried to get into SoundCloud rap and so forth. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, there, there can only be one wick of face brings eternal and there's room for many tiger's jaws. So wait, uh, balance and composure was doing SoundCloud cloud rap? The lead singer, John Simmons, who I've interviewed, um, he got not SoundCloud rap per se, but it was like, it was kind of, he wasn't like rapping, but it was still that kind of sound, that sort of 2018, 19 post Little Peep sort of thing. Okay. Wow. That totally passed me by. I was not aware. Creeps, of, look it up. Of like the Little Peep era of balance and composure in the, in the balance and composure uh, universe. Um I mean, I remember this band. I remember like when they came out in the early 2010s and listening to them and probably talking about them with you. And uh, this is just another example of how things that do not seem consequential in the moment may end up being important later on. Because as you said, this band had a big Tumblr presence and... There was a, a certain generation of you know teenagers, I think, that were into this band. I mean, I remember listening to them and appreciating them sort of as like a a pop grunge type band, more than an emo band. I mean, there was some emo elements maybe to what they were doing, but when I first heard it, I was like, oh, this is kind of like a throwback alt rock 
thing. Oh, which, absolutely. Which at the time was unique. I mean, that became something that uh, became very per- pervasive as the decade wore on. But in 2013, it was kind of fresh and fun, and I liked the record. But I would not have thought that we'd be thinking or caring about this band 10 years in the future. I mean, I was probably thinking about flying cars in 2013. <laughs> no flying cars yet. Looks like we're not going to ever get the flying cars, but we do have a balance and composure revival going on. Yeah, I mean, good for them. I just think about like the one person, like uh, my colleague, Mike Powell, one of the greatest writers that um, he's kind of fallen off the radar, uh, you know, caring for his kids. But I remember he heard Reflection and he said to me, like one of the most poignant pieces of music criticism I've ever heard where he was like, I've never felt this way in my entire life. In other words, it was like kind of a passive aggressive diss. It's like, yeah, man, I, if you're if you're like a classy kind of dude, you're in, you're reading books and whatever. Yeah, you won't relate to this. But it was kind of like a turbocharged Lincoln Park or Deftones or whatever. And I was just happy that like we were able to, um, I don't know, sh- shine a light on that at least for a little while. All right, well, let's go to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing in. Uh, it's always great to hear from our listeners. You can hit, hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. I feel like I should say, uh, or I should acknowledge that, Ian, like, are you holding up? I, I, I know that you're sick here. You're, 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 you kind of have, like, a Tom Waits thing going on with your voice. Yeah. Uh, a little, right. a little Paying throaty. tribute to a San Diego legend. Yeah, but are you hanging in? You're playing hard I'm hanging today. in there, man. All right, man. I appreciate it. No days off. Uh, do you want to read our first letter? I do. So this one comes from Patrick from Chicago, uh, talking about the Walkmen. They are back after an extended hiatus, and Patrick wants to know, what are your thoughts on them? How does their discography hold up? I'm seeing them in a few weeks and excited to be equally enthralled and bummed out by The Rat. So, the Walkmen, they have The Rat, no other songs. <laughs> uh, I'm playing, but... Uh, yeah, like, what do we think about this band? Patrick is asking. Um, yeah. Well... Okay, I have two things with this band. The first thing is that I think this is a classic example of a band that produced a song so great that in a way it put a, it, it kind of dampened the rest of their career. And Patrick referred to the song that we're talking about, The Rat, which was not an actual hit in terms of like the charts, but in terms of like aughts era indie is just like a huge song. And... Mm-hmm. It's the kind of song where pretty much anything anyone ever wrote after that song came out, like they referenced the rat. And as the Walkman's career progressed and it became clear that they were not interested in making another version of the rat, it seemed like people were bringing up that song to criticize their subsequent records. And I have to say that I think that's like a little unfair. I'm actually a fan of some of those late period Walkman records, uh, Lisbon in particular, which I think came out in 2010. I think is like a great record. Yeah, that was twenty. That's a good record. And yeah, c- contrary to like the narrative on this band, I don't think they stopped making rocking songs necessarily. I mean, there's some rocking songs on Lisbon, but it is true that um, their music gets quieter as it goes along. And again, it seemed like people were so infatuated with the rat that they were almost angry (laughs) that they weren't doing that more often. So there's that. 
I think the other thing with the Walkman is that I think the National drank their milkshake, so to uh. speak, in that it's a band that's similar to the Walkman in a lot of ways. They 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 came after the Walkman in terms of their prominence. Like the Walkman were at their peak, uh, sort of indie prominence. I would say mid two thousands. You know, the the Rat came out I think in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. And then the National in the late two thousands they start to rise and they're doing a similar thing. Like where the National they can have some rocking songs, but they also have this sort of hushed Leonard Cohen Nick Cave type thing going on. And they were just a more consistent band. You know, like, the Walkman, I think, had a contrarian streak in what they did. Like, they did a whole album where they covered the Harry Nielsen record, Pussycats. Oh, which, yeah. Which itself is a collection of covers. So, you know, it was sort of like an in-joke for, like, music nerds that, like, someone like myself would appreciate. But in terms of just, like, a general audience, I think they lost the plot a little bit. Whereas a band like The National obviously has shown that they can appeal to sort of like just regular people, not just indie music fans. Mm-hmm. So I wonder like if, if there was sort of an element of that where they got overshadowed by a similar band that they weren't quite as good at, good as, as well as just being overwhelmed by the rat. Cause I think that that song it's, it looms so large in their catalog again, to a degree that I think is a, a little unfair. I- I remember looking on um sp- like listening to the rat on Spotify one time and it had like I think genius lyric posts um where it has like little uh blurbs or descriptions and like it said with the rats like the walkmen don't have a lot of songs like the rat uh and yeah but I, I would also say thinking of a dream and little house of savages from bows and arrows like those also whip and <laughs> the if I remember correctly, I think the Meet Me in the Bathroom chapter about the Walkman is super short, at least compared to like Jonathan Fire Eater. And it just basically talks about like, yeah, man, remember the rat? That shit ripped hard. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I couldn't agree more. But um, yeah, I think the I think the Walkman are an interesting thing. Uh you I do think you're correct in that maybe the national overshadowed them. Um, to the point where they might be seen as a little bit underrated now because they never got as big as some of the other bands that they came up around and they never got as critically acclaimed. And also they never got as overexposed, but um, I would actually argue they're like a example of a band that's like extremely accurately rated uh, in that, you know, the reason they're, they're not a worse band than Interpolar strokes or LCD sound system or the national, but like you can build an entire personality around liking those bands. But you know, if you like the Walkman, you're probably between like the ages of like 35 and 50. And you're like, you're one of those guys I know in real life that like kind of stops reading Pitchfork in college. Um, so, I mean, they're a good band. You kind of had to be there. Uh, every era has these types of bands. I'm not sure who they are just yet. But, you know, I like Lisbon. I think You and Me is a good record. Um, but, you know, there's something about them going away from like rock stuff, which is on the one hand understandable and predictable, but we all, I just want to see more bands get nastier and like more pissy as they get old. I think cloud nothings were like the one example of that. So, um, but yeah, I think they're a good band. Do I need to see them live? I mean, as long as they got the drummer, fuck yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I, I think I agree with you about them being accurately rated. Um, there is an inclination to say that they're underrated just because 
they aren't talked about as much as a lot of bands from that era. But at the same time, like I, I understand why they're not. And I understand why they weren't more successful. I actually think that they had a really nice career. They put out several records that for the people who love them, they really love them. And that's more than most bands do. So I think that they should feel all the pride in the world over the fact that there's any demand at all for them to have a reunion. And they're, I think a lot of these shows are sold out. Hopefully yeah. they'll play more. I have no idea if they have any interest in making another record. Um, yeah, the only thing I would say with them is that I think that they're accurately rated. The Rad is is their best song. Like I wouldn't yeah. disagree with that. But, you know, give those later records a chance. You know, Lisbon in particular, I think, has a lot of just beautiful songs on it uh, that are maybe a little under listened to. So so definitely check that record out. Yeah. Um, Stranded, Stranded's, Stranded's the one. Yeah. Stranded, Blue is Your Blood uh, is a song one. I love a lot. Um, there's some rockers on there too. Like, Woe Is Me is a rocker, you know? But again, The Rat. Uh, There's just like some bands that they, they make such a perfect song that kind of ruins them in a way. You know? And I'm trying to think of other examples of that, but... And I'm sure I'll think of a bunch after this this show ends, but it, it, it's like a Flies, curse. got you where I want you. Yeah, or the rapture, you know, House of Jealous yeah. Lovers, you know, like exactly. where you nail what you do so well that it's like, why even make another song? You know, because everything else you're going to do pales in comparison to that. Um, let's get to our next letter. And this comes from Michael in Boston, and I'll read this one. Hey, Stephen Ian, big fan of the show. I wanted to get your thoughts about Jason Molina and Songs Ohio. Magnolia Electric Company just turned 20 about a month ago, and I've been sort of surprised about how little discussion there's been about the album and Molina's career and influence. I really liked your discussion last week about Wednesday and capturing a sense of place. For me, Molina's music is inseparable from the Southern Midwest, sort of the intersection of Heartland Rock and Southern Rock. I actually first discovered him by listening to JM by Strand of Oaks. Shout out to Tim. Uh, mm-hmm. You can definitely hear his influence on that band, but I wanted to get y'all's opinion about Molina and his impact more broadly on the realm of indie. Again, that's from Michael in Boston. Good question. Jason Molina. Yeah. Yay or nay. Michael, Another yay or nay question. Yeah, Michael in Boston dropping y'alls. I like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean the 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 incept the Southern Midwest that's Kentucky. I mean, I don't know if you've ever. I, I imagine you've driven through Indiana. And, oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah, that is a boy. Yeah, uh, there is a lot of nothing on that uh, drive to Chicago. Let me tell you. Yeah, it is like the empty heart of America, Indiana. It is a mm. it's a fascinating place. I mean, a lot of like famous musicians are from Indiana. You know, Michael Jackson, Axl Rose. John uh, yeah, John Mellencamp. I think I think he's from Indiana. I'm yeah, not sure. <laughs> I think he's I think he's sung about that about a million times. Um, and it's always people, I guess, other than Mellencamp. It's a lot of people who kind of go off and become these outrageous figures, and because Indiana really is a place that, like, I think a lot of people feel compelled to escape, mm-hmm. unless you're like Molina or Mellencamp, where you become, you know, sort of you, like you personify the place. Yeah, I think that kind of gets into what we were talking about with um, how a lot of indie music nowadays doesn't have a same sense of geography. And, you know, I think with, um, you know, when Jason Molina died and also like the 20th uh, anniversary of Magnolia Electric Company, um, you know, a friend of the pod, uh, Jay, who does the uh, Listen Up Nerds um, 
Substack, he wrote about that, and he, he's from Indiana, and it's just like, with Jason Molina, uh, I'm going to be honest, like, back in his heyday, I probably got him confused with Mark Kozlik, you know, this, like, these Midwestern guys making 80-minute albums of, like, really sad, classic rock, Heartland-style music, and, um, you know, it didn't strike me as something I'd want to hear, and then once I did discover him, I was really happy I didn't have that stuff in my life in 2003 like god knows I didn't need like more music about extreme being extremely depressed but um yeah I think that like not being from the midwest has continued to be this kind of um hurdle for me to like truly embrace what he does and also like it is like very classic rock sounding it's not like you know the there's like classic rock influence stuff but also like pretty acoustic numbers i mean this is just like midwest rust belt music about wondering if you're ever going to get the fuck out of here yeah you know molina is someone that i've always appreciated and i like a lot of his records not just as songs ohio but also what that band became which was called magnolia electric company uh there's a Mm -hmm. live album called trials and errors that i remember listening to on long drives through the Midwest. That album means a lot to me, along with the Magnolia Electric Company record. Um, he's interesting to me as a influence because I think a lot of times with indie music, if you hear something with a particular guitar sound, it gets linked to Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Like there is yeah. a very distinct Neil Young and Crazy Horse guitar sound that a lot of bands emulate. And I think that there's a good number of those bands that are actually influenced by Jason Molina because Jason Molina was among the first people to really take that like tonight's the night type aesthetic yeah. and apply it to like Americana, all country type songwriting of like the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and that's just like a great aesthetic that a lot of people have glommed onto. And, you know, the most obvious recent example for me is MJ Lenderman, yeah. who with his last album, Boat Songs, he was pretty transparent about being like a Jason Molina acolyte. And you can hear that influence on a song like Taste Just Like It Costs. I mean, that is like a straightforward, I think, Jason Molina homage the difference with Lenderman is that he has a more, I think, overt sense of humor that leavens the songwriting that Molina doesn't necessarily have, at least like not as, again, overtly as Lenderman does. My thing with Molina is that, again, I love his aesthetic. I do mm-hmm. think that on his albums, which, as you said, they tend to be super long. You know, he's filling out the CD song after song after song, you know, he has like a, a fairly limited palette where it's a lot of mid-tempo dirges. You know, his voice isn't very dynamic, so he's kind of in a narrow range. And over the course of an album, it can get a little exhausting. Like, the songs can feel a little samey after a while. So that would be my criticism, maybe, of, of his records. But, you know, you get a song like Farewell Transmission, and it's, like, impossible to deny. I mean, there is a drama to that. That is very compelling. Like he recorded live in the studio. I think that was an example of like his band not really knowing the song, like when he started playing it. So there is a real sort of Jason Isbell sort of thing. Yeah. Very kind of live wire 
thing going on with that song that's very exciting. I think there's a similar thing on Trials and Errors, the record I mentioned earlier, where you feel like Molina's on the edge of something, and he might tip over into the bad kind of darkness rather than the sort of artistically redeeming darkness that you get throughout the rest of the record. So yeah, I mean, he, he's great, and I think he's more influential than he probably gets credit for. Because I think there are a lot of young singer-songwriters who get likened to Neil Young when they're actually Jason Molina people. Mm. You know, so it's almost like being influenced by Neil Young secondhand through Jason Molina. Yeah, I think that, like, uh, an artist like Jason Molina's, like, influence nowadays, like, might manifest more in, like, metal or, like other kind of dronier rock music. I think Cloakroom, another Indiana band, is a great example of that. They're pretty overt about their, you know, Jason Molina worship. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're hearing, like, metal bands that kind of integrate those, like, seven-minute songs, like baritone guitar, uh, yeah, there's some Jason Molina in there. And, yeah, I think that he's definitely an icon. Uh, do I, you know, love listening to his music not all the time? Well, no, I'm not driving through the Midwest anymore. Uh, but yeah, just be simple, like incredible fucking song. Um, and it's, it's just a strange thing to revisit his music, knowing how his life ended. It doesn't provide any sort of romance or like, um, you know, justification in the way that like people talk about like Elliot Smith or Kurt Cobain, uh, how their deaths like kind of um, embolden the music in a way. It's like this is just sad music of a sad guy um, who met like a pretty sad end. And, you know, if that's what you're going for, then uh, it's really hard to, uh, you know, come up with something uh, that more suits that bill than that. now reached the part of the episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So I'm going to pivot a little bit from a conversation that we had kind of in our DMs recently. I got a word of this album from a band called Bruiser and Bicycle. They are a Albany band on Top Shelf Records, and it was described to me as kind of doing a Animal Collective or Stereo Lab or fiery furnace sort of thing um which you know i've talked on this show about fiery furnaces but nonetheless animal collective yolo tango band on top shelf this is obviously going to be my shit and i was uh not super into it their new album holy red wagon when i first heard it until i realized wait a minute i'm listening to this album all the time in traffic jams on the way home this is not at all the way i'm supposed to be listening to this record and so uh, as soon as like the weather got uh, kind of nice, I tried it out again, and kind of similar to the Animal Collective albums in like the late, the early two thousands, like um, you know Ark, which it's now called, or Sung Tongs. Um, this album is like wholly dependent on the weather, and I really enjoy what it's doing. Um, it in the same way that uh, other top shelf bands like Knife Play, they kind of uh, take from shoegaze and slowcore and make it something that sounds really uh, modern and new, paranormal as well. Uh, Bruiser and Bicycle, they do that with um, you know, a lot of what could be uh, kind of described as uh, Pitchfork Core in 2005. Not just Animal Collective, but there's some Sufjan in there, some Anathalo, if we're going to throw some things, uh, if we're going to you know remember some guys. So yeah, if any of those things sound uh, 
compelling to you. I think that this is like where you need to go in 2023. So my recommendation is uh, out of purely self-interest this week. I want to plug a big feature that I have that went up today on Uproxx. I, I wrote a long column about Metallica, uh, writing about my 40 favorite Metallica songs. And this is in conjunction with a new Metallica album that uh, came out today called 72 Seasons that I think we're going to talk about next week along with maybe Metallica in general. Um, I had a lot of fun writing this column. Um, It actually reminded me how much I love Metallica and how I think especially their 80s work is like it holds up as well as any rock music I think from that of of that time. Um, But they're also just a super fun band to write about. There is a lot of material that this band gives you, a lot of highs, a lot of lows. And I have to say, you know, I I write these kind of columns a lot. And normally, by the end, I'm I'm burned out on the band I'm writing about because I've just immersed myself for a long time in their music. This is the the first time in a while where I actually still wanted to listen to the band after I was done writing my piece. Uh, So even if you're not a Metallica fan, I think you'll enjoy this story. Uh, They are... A very colorful band. Like I said before, I watched Some Kind of Monster again recently. I rewatched it. That's a great film. But, you know, there's so many other nooks and crannies in this band's history that I think are very fun to hash out. So definitely check that out. And I think we're going to talk about Metallica next week. So I'm looking forward to that. Mandatory minimum Metallica. Uh, Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 